Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Uh, there's actually, when I was, those who just listened to our episode on Iraq will know that I've spent a lot of time in the oil industry. And so when I was up in Northern Alberta, working on all those upgraders and such, the term du jour up there was GRD. We just write the letters GRD and it meant get er done. <laughs> and so like, you know, a, a director or someone would, would have like a mandate and he'd be like, all right, you know, he'd write an email. It's like, we're going to go through this initiative. And he'd just sign it like GRD. It's awesome. Do you think if, if he were around today, he'd be Larry, the internet guy? Bad joke. Who's Larry the Internet guy? That's the guy who coined Get Her Done. Larry, really? Larry the Cable Guy. Oh, the Cable Guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, fine. I think, yes, I think Larry the Cable Guy had some influence on the culture of, of Northern Alberta. Because a lot of it is, a lot of Northern Alberta is actually, a lot of the worker base of Northern Alberta is actually maritime. So Maritime Canada, Newfoundland, Labrador, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island. Oh, okay. Those are the five. And... Those areas are largely speaking, if you think about their history, they're separated from the rest of English Canada by, by Quebec. And so they actually, if you think about a bunch of British colonies, they were more connected to Boston than they Makes were sense. to Montreal or to Toronto. And so you talk to a lot of Maritimers, there's a lot of Boston Bruins fans. Mm. Um, and I was turned on to this by a Maritimer that I later looked up during like not the acts of union, but essentially like the each province voted whether to join Canada or not. And some of the maritimer states, I think in particular Newfoundland and Labrador, they included a vote to potentially join the United States in refer this was a referendum to join the United States rather than Canada. No, oh, interesting. Or to stay that. with the crown. And in a number of these places, the United like joining the United States got like 30 to 40% of the vote rather than joining Canada or God forbid saying with the crown, which never did all that well in the Maritimer States. This is why we just need a second war of 1812. We just need to take Canada back. Yeah, it'll be a much, much nicer nation for it. <laughs> I mean, I, I love the Maritimer States. They're also, they have a, because of September 11th, they developed a massive reputation for being incredibly hospitable and kind. Mm. Uh, because so many flights that were flying from Europe to the United States had to get grounded in northern uh, Canada interesting. because for multiple days and they had grounded so many planes in eastern Canada because mm -hmm. what else could you do that 
And like a lot of Maritimers just like opened their doors and invited people in. That's okay. And so where this story ends, that's really sweet, is that so many Americans became so enamored with the Maritimers that the tourism industry there has improved dramatically. Uh, I'd like to go up to that part of Canada. I've only ever seen Montreal and Toronto. Uh, highly recommend St. John, New Brunswick. Okay. Beautiful city, beautiful countryside nearby. Everyone's nice. The food is really good. No, cool. Yeah. We should do a reconsidered Brunswick. <laughs> Take a trip up to... (laughs) So anyway, with that... So, with that digression on Canada, my second favorite country on Earth, compared to to, just to the one that I was born in, which is here in the United States, and my home away from home. Welcome to a micro episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thingy for you. This is a bonus on the uh, on the episode that Xander and I just did on Iraq, and it was because last night we were talking about healthcare in the United States, and like stumbled across some stuff and did some research and learned learned something interesting. What part? A big part of what we do here at Reconsider is we go like blow up, shake stuff up, break stuff, blow up stuff that people are very certain about and then let you let you kind of drift in the abyss with it rather than give you something new to lock down on because that is you know if we think epistemologically like that is the world that's around you there's a lot of uncertainty things are difficult things are complex and like we're gonna make you comfortable with that complexity by hitting you with it multiple you know over and over again and by the way if if you ever start a metal band called drifting in the abyss just let us know we'll play your music all the time And hope maybe we could even change our intro music. Indeed. So this conversation came up last night about healthcare. And healthcare is a topic that Eric and I have struggled with on this show because we just don't know that much about it. We know a little bit about it. And the conversation we had was really more of a question raiser than anything else. And I forget exactly how it came up, but it was after at least two beers. And Eric brought this up and he said, okay, well, there's this argument for universal healthcare that's tied to the idea of purchasing power. A bigger customer can have more negotiating leverage with the insurance companies and therefore get you know better prices. So if an entire government was the only buyer of healthcare for an entire country, then they could get better deals. Yeah, by being probably. a bigger buyer. Yeah, they, exactly. Yeah. A monopsony for those economic nerds out there. Well, it, it's there's two actually there's actually two different things going on, and we should consider both. One of them is just the size of the buyer, and one of them is being a monopsony. So when you are a monopsony, a That's provider right. has zero options to sell to anyone other than you. So it's sell to you or go out of business. Mm-hmm. And when you are just a big buyer, you just have more leverage. Now, and I can confirm, I can confirm from experience that the economic theory that bigger buyers have more leverage is true. I worked for a while in the manufacturing industry, a lot of consumer packaged goods. You know, my clients made stuff for retailers. And why was I consulting for them? Because Walmart and Amazon were constantly putting massive, massive pressure on them to reduce price. And because there were a few big buyers and a lot of vendors, what it meant was, you know, these big buyers had a lot of power to say, like, look, if you don't sell to us, like, a substantial part of your, you know, of your income will or your revenue will dry up. We're, you know, we're essentially looking at a bunch of vendors and and we're going to bias our purchasing towards the ones who control for price best. So like this is one of those things that bigger buyers have more power. They can drive prices down. And that's one of the theories behind universal healthcare is that a single payer, a single buyer can force people to drive their prices down because they could say, sell it to us at this rate or eat it. 
Yeah. Right. And so it makes sense. Um, and so I get curious about this and I want to do some research on it in part because I'd heard this argument enough times and the thought that came into my head was, wait a minute, aren't a lot of insurers in the United States pretty big already? Mm-hmm. And so really quickly, what I did was just like five minutes of research. And I'm only going to I'm only going to talk about five minutes of research here in part because I want you, dear listeners, to understand that you can do this with five minutes of research. Right? You don't have to be professional here to, to see some stuff. But so what I did was I looked at, you know, I'd already looked at, you know, who, who's essentially winning the cost benefit game of mm-hmm. healthcare, And commonly the United Kingdom is the winner there is is like is, is the touted winner. Their costs per person are about two and a half times less than the United States. And their outcomes are just as good or better in a lot of ways. And a lot of people go like, how can we be more like the United Kingdom? And I've heard the argument of, you know, of the United Kingdom since the NHS buys everything has huge bargaining power. And I go, great. What's the population of the United Kingdom? 66 million. That's close. And so, okay, that's really big, right? So you have a single buyer for 66 million people. They've got a lot of buying power. And they said, I wonder what the biggest insurer, the biggest buyer of healthcare stuff in the United States is. And how big is it, Eric? It is United Health Group and it's 70 million. Ah, so the biggest insurance buyer in the US is bigger than, uh, has more people in its health insurance pool than the entire United Kingdom. Right. So why are prices there? And presumably they're not buying significantly less stuff per person than the United Kingdom. Presumably, I don't know, maybe. The United States, consumption of healthcare per person is comparable to that of the rest of the, of like industrialized nations, quote unquote, we just pay more per thing. It's okay. definitely the case that we pay more per thing. So one thing we know is that United Health Group is paying a lot more for hospital visits, for MRIs, for doctor visits, for drugs, for everything than the National Health Service of the United Kingdom. And we know that they're paying more we, the insurers pay more, and obviously those costs are getting passed along in various different ways to employers, to consumers, to the government, stuff like that. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. One thing I want to 
nip in the bud here is it's a common campaign talking point for more left-leaning Democrats who go, you know, look at this healthcare company. They're making millions or tens of millions in profits, profits, right, which are bad. Being a health insurer, if we cut them out, those tens of millions in profits or maybe even hundreds of millions, right, in profits would be cut out. The profit, the margin rate, the business margin rate of the health insurance industry is one of the lowest margin businesses in the world. It's 3%. So if you think of United Health Group with 70 million people, if they're making hundreds of millions in profit, they're making dollars, a couple dollars per person. Even if they're making billions of profit, they're making tens to hundreds of dollars total per person they're insuring. You're it, if they're making tens of billions in revenue. Then their no, no, no. profit. Well, well, their revenue is massive. Their profit is their profit is tiny. So they're getting. So even if they, you know, with seventy million subscribers, I, if they have seven, yeah. I'm just I'm just trying to clarify for people who might not not know that margin means like profits over yeah. revenue, right? Yes. Yes. So if it's three percent profit margin, yeah. and you make a hundred million dollars, then your net profit is three million. Exactly. That's all we mean by margin. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Sorry. So, you know, even if their profit margin was seven or their total profit for the year was 700 million, they're getting $10 per person. Their net income was 10.2 billion. So they're making tens of billions of dollars in profit over about 100 million people. That's 100. uh, They're making somewhere between 100 and $150 per person per year that they insure in profit. So each person that they insure, they get about $150 worth of profit per year. So if you think about that, like it's it's not much, right? Like they're not they're not of the nine thousand dollars you spend per year, one hundred fifty dollars of that goes to the pockets mm-hmm. of the owners of an insurance company, right? So that's not where the cost is going either. It is the case that the insurers in the United States, despite being massive, are paying way more than the national buyers of the United Kingdom. Or, for example, if we think. If we think of the nation of Finland, which pays even less per capita than the United Kingdom, has 5.5 million people total that it's buying for and still paying way less than or way less than the United States, less than the UK. And so I have to assume that like there's just not much correlation or not, not even assume. Sorry, I know I can plot this, right? Like Germany, which has more people than the UK, pays more than the UK. So and Luxembourg, which is tiny, pays almost as much as the United States. Now, part of it's that Luxembourg's GDP is much higher. Things just cost. Long story short is that like there's just not a correlation between size of buyer in the healthcare market and the total national healthcare expenditure per person. There's not a correlation between absolute size. And so right. when Eric brought this up last night, sort of the two questions that came to my mind that I don't have answers to. Right. So by the way, if you are like a PhD public finance researcher in healthcare, please reach out to us. We really would like to know more about this. Eric, at we might interview you. We would definitely interview if, you know, you do good research and, you know. And can talk. Yeah, and can talk. Um, <laughs> Eric, E-R-I-K at reconsidermedia.com. Xander, X-A-N-D-E-R at reconsidermedia.com. Do reach out to us. Anyways, the questions that came to my mind that I don't have answers for are, okay, well, it doesn't seem like absolute size is correlated to healthcare costs because if it were, then... United Healthcare, which has 70 million subscribers, would be able to achieve lower healthcare costs in the UK, which only has 66 million population. But maybe it's the correlation is not absolute size. Maybe it's relative size. So it's percent market share. So Eric made the distinction at the beginning of the episode between monopsony, which is just a single buyer, and total size of the entity buying. So maybe it is the situation that more buyers 
uh, creates the flexibility in, in the market that does allow prices to go up. Maybe because the sellers can choose, you know, how much uh, they're willing to work with each of the health insurance buyers. Maybe that's maybe that has something to do with it because the UK is just a single buyer, right? More or less. Oh, it is a single buyer yeah. for the United Kingdom. For the United Kingdom, right. So, But there is no single buyer for in the U.S. So maybe it's not just about absolute size. It's about relative size percent capture of the total health insurance market. Maybe. I don't know. That would be the first thing that I would look into. Yeah. The, the second question that came to mind would, would be whether or not there are one-time or upfront costs in the U.S. that are covered in our health insurance costs that aren't covered elsewhere. And I've heard this talking point a lot, and I have no idea how true it is. That because so much R&D gets done in the U.S. by U.S. companies and, you know, R&D right. for pharmaceuticals, new medicine, very expensive, takes a long, long time to get to market. A lot of a lot of billions are, are spent that materialize nothing because they don't pass FDA tests. And maybe that's something else contributing to it. Just because so much R&D gets done in the U.S., the U.S. market has to cover those additional costs. I don't know. If you do, please contact us. Right. So the yeah. And there's there's a lot of other complicating factors here that. And so the United States, if we look at if we look at just like Wikipedia's thing on healthcare costs per capita across industrialized nations, like in the 70s, it was the same across US and European nations. And a lot of them had single payer even then, and we didn't. So it's like, it's not obviously just like single payer, good, not single payer, bad. Um, the Netherlands, which has a marketplace system that was the foundation for the architecture of uh, Romney Care in Massachusetts and Obamacare in the United States... It pays a lot less than the United States, mm. even though it's not a single payer. And it's a bit of a head scratcher. The only person I've seen who's who's like really taken a hard stand on this that seems credible, although deeply biased based on their position on economics is Milton Freeman, who said that it was actually the regulatory structure of Medicare and Medicaid and all like the requirements that were thrown into like both reporting requirements and coverage requirements that were thrown into it that caused uh, the number of people involved per patient in healthcare to increase. So he's got this correlation of like people involved per patient, in particular, non-medical professional people involved per patient. And that's all gone up substantially in the United States. I don't know if it has in European nations or not. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't know if that's something unique to the United States and how much those actual people are driving costs. Because I also know that device and drug margins in the United States are pretty high. They're like 20%, which is very good. For yeah. physical product. Yeah. yeah, for physical product, it's awesome. So certainly it's the case that some of it is going to manufacture profits. It can't all be going to manufacture profits because even if you had 0% margin in European nations, that only accounts for 20% extra cost. And, and well, 20% of extra cost only for the consumed devices and drugs, which is only a fraction of what you're paying anyway. So like, it can't be all the cost either. It's like, where's it all going? So what's the reconsider moment from this mini episode that has turned into less than a mini episode? <laughs> If you listen to this debate out in sort of the U.S. political environment, it usually goes something like this. Like one side will say, oh, we need single buyer, universal health care. And if you disagree with me, then you are a corporate shill and you only like profits and don't care about people. And the other side will say socialism, socialism, socialism is bad. Look at look at Russia, even though, you know, there's really a distinction between socialism and communism. Venezuela claims to be socialist. Yeah, but are they really like the Institute of Price Controls and a centralized planning? Like, that, okay, we're not going to get into distinction between socialism and communism on this episode. Point is, that side of the aisle will say socialism is bad, free market is good, and if you don't like the free market, then you're you're an idiot and well, you're yeah, going to ruin the socialist. Country. Yeah, and and a socialist. <laughs> and in my mind, 
there's so much nuance and uncertainty in this space that probably the vast majority of people talking about the issue don't really have the expertise to really have any informed policy position. I could be wrong about that, but it's okay to get into a conversation with someone about this and ask questions and not have answers to them, because then all of a sudden you are engaged in a shared effort towards understanding something about your country, about your society better. And that's, that's a fun thing, right? All of a sudden you're on the same team instead of fighting each other over something that, you know, the nuances of which you might not even fully understand. Fighting's fun. Fighting is fun. I hate you, Eric. Why are you a socialist? I don't hate you. I just like fighting with you. <laughs> Anyways, that I think that's the reconsider moment in my mind from this little mini episode. Again, if you do research in this area, if you know, if you have expertise in healthcare, boy, would we love to interview you. So reach out to us. And anything else? I don't know. Don't just please stop like when your Facebook friend posts something on or or whatever the social medias are these days that is like an image of someone who looks like an expert and then just some like declarative statement, like stop pretending that's real research with no source with no fucking source. <laughs> Eric is sitting here with his head in his in his palm right now, shaking his head as he says this. It's so annoying. It's so avoidable. It is. Endorphins are hard to control, though. They we're, are. We're addicted. We're addicted to being. We're addicted to this stuff. I mean, it's literally an addiction, right? Where like someone's like, someone like posts something that is like, "You are right." Other people who are not you are idiots, and you're like, "Yeah, I agree with him so much." Oh, yeah, let's share that. Or like someone posts something that is like, "You are bad." People who are not you are good. And you're like, "God, oh, so mad! I have to share that too." Right? And like, you just think, you know, if you just like look at the systemic incentives for like 12 seconds, you're like, "Oh, that's how all this stuff gets shared around." Right? None of it is shared because it's more true, or more sensible, or even a good argument. It's just because it like provokes endorphins in people and it makes them make these microscopic decisions while they're emotional. I think I think the single most impactful consequence of social media that I've done absolutely no research on, so by the way, I take this with a grain of salt, is that instead of having conversations with people, you are engaging in a public debate. And all of a sudden, because you know that everyone else is reading what you write, it's no longer talking with someone. It's about trying to win in front of an audience of peers. Mm-hmm. And if, so if you were to stop posting on Facebook or Instagram instead of send, instead send someone a private message and say, hey, what do you think about this? In my experience, you usually end up having more nuanced, informed, and cordial conversations with people that you disagree with. But I don't know. That's just a hypothesis. So take it for what you will. Is that it? Let's get out of here. All right. Don't pundits thinking something positive. bad. That. Bye. See ya. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.